we'll read verse 3. Paul writes, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again this morning. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and that which you teach us. Thank you for revealing Christ to us through the word of God by the working of your spirit. Lord, you've given us eyes that we can see and ears to hear and hearts to receive of your truth. So may we do nothing to hinder the working of your spirit. But may you, with the power of your spirit, using your word, Lord, give us understanding and discernment in the word of God. I do pray for every soul that is gathered here this day. We ask that you might help us to understand and see that which you have provided for us through our blessed Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. This morning, if you've been with us, you are aware that we are beginning our third study of Paul's epistle to the Colossi believers, or the church at Colossi, the Colossian church. And last week we considered the first two verses which make up Paul's greeting or his introduction to the epistle. And so if you look at verses 1 and 2, of course, we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've begun looking now as we proceed further into this text. I gave you an overview a couple of weeks ago and then introduction into the book, which really uh, consists of verses 1 and 2, which we've just read. And so now we're moving further into the letter. Uh, and, and we saw, um, just by way of reminder for you in review, in verse 1, Paul identified himself. If you recall, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. Paul stated in this greeting that he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul's claims, as we saw last week, Paul's claims in this greeting were not without uh, validation. He did not have to prove anything about his apostleship because his apostleship was proven by God's power as demonstrated and manifested in and through his life. Yet Paul did not, uh, was not ashamed to identify in his calling. And furthermore, he wrote and spoke and lived under the responsibility of God calling him to be an apostle. In fact, while we today would read this and many would view this as, Paul, as though Paul is boasting of something by claiming, oh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. As this, these were some accolades to be put on him. Paul didn't view it this way at all. Paul viewed this as a tremendous responsibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this was not some tag that he wore on his chest to identify who he was, but this was the truth of who he had been made to be, his very being, because of the calling of God in his life. Second, Paul identified his audience, we saw in verse 2, when he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this verse, Paul pointed out that his audience had two identities, if you will. First, we see their spiritual identity, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Saints, of course. This title is one which is unique to those who have been redeemed. The title saints means holy or holy one. Paul declared that those God redeemed were set apart. They were consecrated unto the Lord uh, by himself, by God himself. And again, I want to emphasize something. I thought of this after I was speaking on this last week. I maybe should have stated this in a different way, so I'll try to do so this morning to maybe give you a little more clarity in what is being stated. Um, I, I said to you last week, if you recall, that many people often make statements such as this, and, and it is a statement that is said, I believe, in an attempt to, uh, to, to be humble before God and even before others in making such a statement such as, um, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But I believe there's a great fallacy in making that statement according to what Scripture teaches us. Though we are... We, we, we were sinners who are now saved by grace, and the Scriptures teach us that if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. He has been transformed. Now, do I still sin? Of course I still sin. But here's what I'm saying to you. If we're not careful, we may actually marginalize the very grace of God, which he declared is capable of transforming us, making us a new creature, and therefore excuse ourselves in our own sin because, after all, we're just sinners 
who've been saved by grace. No, we are now saints. In fact, here's how I think I should have said it last week, and I will say now. I was a sinner who's been changed by God's grace. Hence, now he has declared me to be holy and consecrated unto himself. And as I said before, many people often view this from the perspective of, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner attempting to become a saint, striving to become a saint. No, I am a saint who just still happens to sin. And so this is who God has made me to be. And this is not saying that we are perfect by any means. No, but God views us in Christ who is perfect and righteous, and we are now in him. We are not identified in and of ourselves. He goes on to say faithful brother in Christ. The adjective faithful means reliable and believing. And these believers remained faithful or full of of faith in Christ. Faithful is full of faith. It doesn't just mean that they continue to do what they were supposed to do. No, uh, they were faithful. They were full of faith. Then second, we see their earthly identity. He goes on to say, which are at Colossae. Now, Paul writes this letter to the believers who were at Colossae. That's how we know who this is. And this statement, these believers which are at Colossae, this geographical identifier, if you will, uh, was one which identified, of course, where they were, not what or who they were. They were saints, faithful brethren in Christ. This is who they are. This is what they are. Where they are happens to be Colossae. And so he gives them this identifier, of course. He's recognizing or acknowledging who they are and pointing out this is to them. Um, We see as well, see that Paul identified the unity shared between himself and the Colossian church. He said, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So after expressing his desire for the church to continue in the grace and the peace of God, Paul then declared the common ground which they shared. From God, grace and peace unto you, from God our Father. Not just Paul and Timothy's father, no. Paul, Timothy, and the Colossian believer's father. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity between Paul and the church of Colossae was one that was uh, founded on the basis of of the relationship which they shared with God. God was their heavenly father. Now, this is very important, again, when you remember the context here. Paul had never met this church. Paul had never been to the church at Colossae. Paul had not founded the church at Colossae. They had never met Paul. And yet, he identifies their common ground, though they had never met in person. And he says, God, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this next portion of the epistle, as we've read this morning in verse 3, follows Paul's signature style, which I outlined for you in the introduction of our an overview of this uh, study, which we have previously uh, pointed out in those studies by comparing this epistle with Paul's other epistles, in which Paul expresses his prayer for those to whom he has written. This was Paul's signature style. He gives his introduction, he identifies himself, gives his introduction, and then he speaks of his prayer for those to whom he has written. And so here Paul is now praying for this Colossian church. Yet before we begin our examination of Paul's prayer, which is what I fully intended to do this morning, and I was working that way, and then I began to, uh, I paused for a moment, began to ponder something, and so I will, uh, I will give a disclaimer here for you. If you were in our Theology Tuesday class this past Tuesday, then you can go ahead and leave and go to lunch. Because we are going to review what we were dealing with in our study in our because of this matter of prayer. Paul says, praying for you always. And so I began to think about the importance of rather than just showing what Paul prayed for, which we are going to get into as the text explains it in future studies. But rather than jumping and diving right into that, I began to say, wait a minute, we need to understand some truths about prayer first, I believe, to see the significance of what Paul even means when he says, praying for you always. Now, there is not a possibility of a chance that I would be able to exhaust the matter of prayer to you this morning. I I confess and concede to to that point, that there's no way that I could speak about everything Scripture teaches about prayer. I could not teach you, I could not show you every single instance. It would take us forever to get through every instance of prayer, every spirit of prayer, every moment of prayer, even the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, which are recorded in Scripture, even the model prayer itself. You could spend weeks 
on teaching the truth that is within that and the manner in which we are to pray. So this by no means is, is meant to be an exhaustive teaching on prayer, but I do want to pause this morning and break away for just a moment. We're in the text, but to consider the importance of prayer and also to consider while we think of what prayer is, we also must recognize what prayer is not and what it must not be or how it must not be misused as we would claim to pray. And so before we get into this, I again want to point some things out, even from our study from last Tuesday for those who were with us. And, and it will be somewhat different, of course, but I want to draw from that in helping you to understand some truths concerning prayer. In our theology class, we've been dealing for months um, on the matter of soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And at, we're nearing the end of our study in that class of soteriology, and I have gone now to the tabernacle, and there's a reason for all of this, and I'm going to set a set some context for you so you understand where we are, why we are where we are, and where we're going to be this morning concerning this matter. So when you look at the tabernacle, Hebrews teaches us plainly, of course, that the tabernacle, all of its furnishings, uh, its very purpose, of course, was all a shadow of the true. And in order for something to cast a shadow, uh, in order for a shadow to be present, two other things must be present. There must, first of all, be light, and then there must be some form of substance. So without light and without something of substance, you have no shadow. You can have light, and yet there be no shadow. You can have a form of substance, and yet there be no shadow. But you cannot have light and the form of substance, and it's shining in that direction without there being a shadow that is cast. And so the shadow of the true, the true tabernacle, the true high priest, the true atonement, the true sacrifice, uh, all of these things, Christ is the true of all of that, and Christ has always been. Uh, Christ has not always been in the flesh. But Christ has always been. And so we recognize he's always been one with the Father. And yet in eternity prior to creation, we understand that Jesus was not in the flesh, but in the fullness of time he was manifest in the flesh. So here you have Jesus, the very substance of all the promises of God, of all those shadows that would now are cast. You have God who is light. There's no shadow of turning in him. Then you have the substance of Christ. And Christ, that shadow being cast, now all these things are types or shadows of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to look at the we began to look at the furnishings of the tabernacle and I will not have time to get into all of this this morning. Though I would really love to. We don't have time to do that, but I will rush through some of it so we can get to where we need to be concerning this matter of prayer and what it is and is not and understanding its significance. Scripture teaches us how that each piece of the furnishings of the tabernacle again is not only a shadow or representation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but also is representative of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in relation to man. So it's not just this represents Jesus. No, it represents Jesus and his work and his ministry as it concerns man. And that's very important for us to recognize. So we were examining this past week, the altar of incense, and how this represents Christ's ministry of supplication on our behalf. However, this altar of incense is not only Christ's supplication on our behalf, but also is a picture, if you will, of prayer in our own lives. And we're going to look into that and see that. Now, I do want to make uh, mention, of course, that the uh, pieces of the furnishings, as you, this is the one, as we'll see in a moment, that is closest to the most holy place. And so the tabernacle had uh, multiple pieces of furnishings. And I will mention this a little later as well, but you had to go by each one of these pieces to ever get to the altar of incense. And each one of them are significant, again, not only in showing us a picture or a shadowing of Christ, but also a shadowing of the ministry of Christ as it relates to man and his work that he has accomplished. So we find the Lord's instruction concerning the structure and use of the altar of incense in the book of Exodus. And so I want to look there this morning, Exodus chapter 30, and, and keep your Bibles open there for a bit, if you will. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 10. You can turn there and read if you'd like as well. Then we'll be in Exodus 30 uh, in a few moments further on. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon. Of shatim wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four squares shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. And the horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And the two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof. Upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. 
And thou shalt make the staves of Shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. Please notice what's being stated here. He is saying, I will meet with you in the most holy place, where the ark of the covenant is, where the mercy seat is. But he also says that this altar of incense is in the furthermost part of the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place. Meaning, remember, the tabernacle, there's only one way in and one way out. There's no back door. And so the further you come into the tabernacle, ultimately you reach the innermost part, which is at the rear of the tabernacle, if you will, which is the most holy place, wherein is the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Covenant, in which, of course, is Aaron's rod that budded, the broken law, and the manna which was kept therein. And the Lord says, I will meet with you there. Now remember, and this is interesting, I want to point this out because this is important in relation to the altar of incense as well. The high priest would go in once a year for his own sin and for the sins of the people, and he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the atonement from the brazen altar. The brazen altar is the first piece. It's actually in that outer court there of the tabernacle, and you find the brazen altar before anyone could even come and into the court of the tabernacle. They had to pass by the brazen altar. Let me go back and mention this too before I get too far ahead of myself, that there is a purpose for the tabernacle being made. God told Moses when instructing him on how, what he was supposed to do in building the tabernacle, he says, I want you to uh, build a tabernacle. And he gave the reason as to why. He says that I might have a place to dwell among my people. So God says, I am going to require you to build this tabernacle so I can dwell among my people. Now, God's presence among his people is focused on what? Worship. It's on worship of him. He is coming to where they are that they might worship him. But in order to enter into the worship of God, there were all of these pieces of furnishings that God had provided that they might then be granted access into his presence by virtue of the representation of the high priest. Now, we also need to recognize that as the tabernacle was being constructed and Moses was given the instruction, God is very specific concerning the details of the structure or construction of the tabernacle. He didn't leave Moses any room for conjecture or error or to improvise. God told Moses exactly the dimensions, the, the, the uh, construct itself, the materials from which it would be constructed. God was very specific. And then you may ask, well, why? Well, I think a very general answer could be obviously that God is a God of order. Well, absolutely that's true, but it's, it's not that alone. I think that's a very a casual way to, to approach that. I believe we must understand, as Hebrews teaches us, Hebrews chapter 9 specifically, that in chapter 10, 11, but chapter 9 specifically, is that the tabernacle was a shadow of a true tabernacle, which was not made of earthly hands. And so there was a pattern, the scripture says, by which this tabernacle was to be made. Well, why did it have a pattern? Because there was already a true tabernacle, which this tabernacle is simply representing. So this was not the first tabernacle to ever be built. There is an eternal tabernacle, and that tabernacle is one by which Moses was given the instructions on how to build this earthly, fleshly tabernacle. And by the way, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, the scripture speaks of how that the tabernacle was there, and they went about their physical, earthly, fleshly duties of the tabernacle concerning the divine service of God. And just to show you again, focus of this tabernacle being that of worship, the term divine service means divine worship. That's what it literally means. So he's saying this is the divine worship of God. And so all of these things were necessary. Now, another reason why God was so specific concerning the tabernacle and its structure is because we must remember something. Man can never approach God on his own terms. God has already provided for us in Jesus Christ, and there is one provided way. There is one way to the Father, and that is by his Son. And by the way, his Son is that true priest, the true tabernacle, the true sacrifice. He is the true of all of that, which is represented by these shadows. So he says, he says again, verse 6 of Exodus 30, where I will meet with thee. Now notice again, Verse 6, thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. So the altar of incense 
is the closest piece of furnishing to the most holy place. Nothing else is closer. It's the closest piece. He goes on to say, verse 7, And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it. Notice the next statement here, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Verse 9, ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. We always talk about the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat. But did you read what was just stated? It says that once a year, the day of atonement, that not only did the priests go in and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, but also upon the altar of incense, which is closest to the mercy seat and the most holy place. Now, it, 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 a couple of things about prayer that we mentioned first. We read of prayer and supplication, and I dealt with this recently through our studying Philippians, I believe, when we came upon this. But you read often where Paul specifically will pray or will mention in his letters concerning prayer and supplication. But there is a distinction between the two. Supplication is that of plea or a pleading, but it's that of prayer. But there is a distinct difference between the generalization of prayer and supplication itself. And those in the class should be able to answer this question. So I will ask, what is supplication? It's prayer for others, specifically. And you will find that to be true throughout Scripture consistently, that supplication is not necessarily you praying for yourself, it's praying for others. I told you a moment ago, the altar of incense is a shadow of the ministry of Christ in relation to supplication. He is praying for us. And Scripture teaches us that, that he is our intercessor and he has prayed for you. Remember, even in John 17, in the high priestly prayer of Christ, he speaks of his disciples and he says, I have sheep above other fold. He says, and I pray for them also. So there is this ministry of prayer, if you will, that exists, a representation before the Father on our behalf. Now, it's not uncommon as well it's not uncommon to find incense related to prayer within scriptures. I'm just going to give you a couple of references. There are, of course, more. But Psalm 141.2, listen to what the scripture states. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So what the psalmist is saying is, I, I desire that my prayer before you be as the incense, as the evening sacrifice which is offered unto the Lord. Luke 1.10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So at the time of incense, what were they doing? They were praying. Prayer and incense is associated throughout Scripture. The Lord also provided instruction concerning the incense itself in the latter portion of chapter 30 of the book of Exodus. So if you go back to Exodus again, Exodus chapter 30, and begin reading in verse 34, just verses later. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stacti and, and onica and galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be like, a like weight, and thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection, after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy, and thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee, it shall be unto you most holy." And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, notice what he says here, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall be even cut off from his people. The incense which was burnt upon the altar of incense, God not only gives instruction on the altar itself, but then specifically gives instruction on the incense or the perfume which was to be made. Now notice, they had to put time and effort into making this perfume, but then God warns them. And he says, this is holy unto the Lord, and you are not to replicate this. You are not to make any of this for your own or make any of this that you might, that you might wear it yourself. This isn't about you and for you. This is unto the Lord. It's holy unto him. So the Lord is very specific concerning even the perfume and the incense itself and how it was to be constructed and what, it was to be, what was to be done with it and what was not to be done with it. So in other words, again, the incense and perfume was not to be duplicated or fabricated 
for personal use, but was to be consecrated unto the Lord, offered unto Him, selflessly unto Him. Let me say to you that our prayer is more than an act of sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of our personal will and desires in submission to the purpose and will of our Heavenly Father. In other words, many people have many times said, you know, that we need to sacrifice our time in prayer. Of course, we should be praying. But the point of the matter is you can spend hours in what you call prayer and yet be offering up a strange incense unto the Lord. You could be offering up that which is meant for your benefit rather than that which is selflessly resigning to the Lord and His purpose and His will being accomplished. And God says that is forbidden. This isn't meant for you to take advantage of this and think that it's something for you to duplicate or make for yourself, but rather this is holy unto the Lord. Three things concerning prayer we glean from the altar of incense I want to point out quickly this morning. First, the importance of prayer. Second, the purpose of prayer. And third, the power of prayer. As we consider this matter of prayer, let's begin with the importance of prayer in our lives. Exodus 30, verse 6. Let's read that together. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that it is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. Again, this altar of incense was the closest piece of furniture to the ark of the covenant, which was within the most holy place. And we are reminded by the position of the altar of incense that it is through prayer that God works his will in our lives as we submit our entire beings to him. Paul instructed those in Thessalonica. And remember, we saw a while ago where he says in uh, the instruction concerning the, uh, the, the altar of incense and the perfume which was to be burnt thereon, he says that Aaron was to offer this incense perpetually. It was a perpetual incense. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, do you know what Paul says? Pray without ceasing. This is perpetual. Now, wait a minute. Again, does this mean that we're to have worn out knee holes in our jeans because we're crawling around all day long and praying? No, it means that we are to have an attitude of submission unto God and an open communication with the Lord at all times. This isn't talking about your moments of prayer, though that can be included in this. This is talking about your very spirit and attitude. This altar of incense was perpetually being offered unto God. They would come and refresh it. Notice that. They would come and, and, put, and, and dress the lamps, the scripture says, put the oil therein. So they were constantly, or the perfume and such, they were constantly having to, to care for this altar of incense as God had instructed. But it was a perpetual offering unto the Lord. That was taking place. So when Paul says pray without ceasing, again, he's he's not saying that we are to be stuck in a closet somewhere our entire lives, never seeing daylight because we're constantly secluded to ourselves before the Lord. No. But our communication unto the Lord is to be constant, and our spirit is to be continually, perpetually humble before Him in submission to His will being accomplished. In Exodus 25 through 27, chapter 25 through 27, the Lord gives the pattern for the tabernacle. And it's important to note the order and structure here. It is not until chapter 30, as we've already read, that the Lord gives the instruction for the altar of incense, how it's to be constructed, and also then the perfume itself, how is it, it is to be made. And so in the making of this perfume and the structure of the, of the altar, God says this is close to the most holy place where I will meet with you. It's the next piece before you enter into the most holy place. And that's where I'm going to meet with you, he says. But notice, God did not give instruction on how to build or how to construct or how to, uh, to put together the perfume or the altar of incense itself until first you see in Exodus 28 and 29 that the appointment of the priesthood is given. In other words... The altar and the perfume would be of no benefit and of no effect if there weren't a priesthood in place by which the people were represented before God. The altar which represents us coming before the Lord is not mentioned until the provision of the priesthood has been given. And the common understanding here obviously then is that the it is through the priest that access was granted 
The people could not just barge into the most holy place, or the holy place for that matter. This was a place that was set aside for the priest to enter in and therefore represent the people before God. Remember the difference between a prophet and a priest. A prophet represents God to man, thus saith the Lord. A priest represents man to God. When he went into the most holy place, he's representing sinful man before a holy God. And God had ordained him to do such. And here's what's so wonderful about our great high priest. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. He is one with the Father. And so our great high priest will never be rejected. He is ever at the right hand of God the Father in whom the Father is pleased with his Son. So we are represented by the very one who is prophet, priest, and king, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Not one. And again, we see that in Hebrews so clearly. But I wish I had time to really work through Hebrews. I, I don't. But I wish I really had time to work through Hebrews this morning and help you to see the, the beauty of the shadows that are present and how they so, such a marvelous job of, of representing the Lord Jesus when they are understood, just like the tabernacle and its pieces of furnishings. Let me interject this truth. It's just a side note. But we actually read the verse this morning where it said that the, uh, the veil, which is to say his flesh. Did you catch that this morning in our Hebrews reading? And the fact of the matter is that the veil was rent from top to bottom at the time that Christ died. And the reason why that is so is because that shadow no longer had any purpose because the, veil, the flesh of Christ is the true veil that was rent on our behalf. And that's true of all the shadows. There's no need for them anymore. Hence, the Old Testament is abolished and it, it's made perfect in the new. Because let me say this too, in relation to all of this, this is so important because these are shadows of the true. To recognize that the old is abolished, it's made perfect in the new. The old covenant was conditions, if you recall. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord said to his people, chosen people, Israel, as a whole, as a nation I'm speaking of, and he says to them, if you do this, then I will do this. And it's still a true promise and covenant of God. And the covenant was made between God and man. But the new covenant is not between God and men. It's between God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no possibility of it failing because Christ does not fail. He is faithful, whereas man failed. So the old is abolished and and perfected within this new covenant and so all of these things again being that shadow of of the true and the priesthood had to have been established before the altar of incense had any meaning or any purpose hear me closely please people who are unregenerate can pray to a god to their god to their profession a claim of who they acknowledge to be god all they will but without having the high priest representing you it all is meaningless and useless. It is through God's provision of Christ. I'm about to give you a, a I'm going to give you a speed course through what we've covered already, okay, real quickly in our classes. That is, it's through God's provision of Christ as our salvation, the brazen altar, sanctification, the labor of brass, spiritual sight, the candlestick, and sufficiency, the table of showbread that we have been granted access in prayer. Christ is our supplication, and we now have access before him. Second, the purpose of prayer in our lives. Exodus 37 through 9. Let's read again in Exodus. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. The altar of incense is just that. It is an altar. Again, hear me. Biblical prayer consists of a sacrifice. But it is not the sacrifice most people view it to be. Most people think it's how long I spend in prayer, how many hours I set aside for prayer. I'm not saying you're wrong to do that by any means, but that is not the sacrifice. If there is no offering of yourself before the Lord in submission to his will, then you've not biblically prayed at all. No matter how much time you may spend. 
And that's addressed here in this shadow. Prayer is never meant to be a means to get what we want. It is a means by which we are confessing and acknowledging and surrendering our will to the Lord. Saying, your will be done. Remember the prayer even of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you recall. Nevertheless, nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. Even in the model prayer, if you remember. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. This is the Lord showing us, our, our Savior showing us the example of this meaningful truth of prayer and this provision. Not that we get what we want, but that we are submitting our very greatest desires and that which we long for even with the, even with the purest motives and intents. That we may desire something to be that isn't even selfish for us. But yet it's nonetheless saying, Lord, from my perspective, this is what I think would bring you glory and honor. This is what I think would be good. This is what I think would be whole and righteous. And I don't think there's anything wrong with what I'm requesting. Nonetheless, regardless of all of that, your will be done and I'm submitted to your will. And where I'm not, help me to be. That's the sacrifice of prayer. It's not the hours you spend. It's the spirit and attitude in which we approach our Heavenly Father. I'll give you a great example of that as well. As you recall with the, what is referred to as the prodigal son, I don't refer to that passage as such, that parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And you find there really the, the faithful father. That's <laughs> what you see in this. But nonetheless, you see in, the, in that account in Luke's gospel, you, you see where uh, that young son that is spoken of, the lost son, how he goes to his father. And remember what he says. He says two words. To his father. Before he leaves out, he's, he's making a demand of his father. And what does he say? Give me. Give me what I deserve. Give me what's coming to me. Give me from your goodness. Give me from your wealth. Give me from your riches. Let me have what's mine. I think that's somewhat presumptuous to begin with. But nonetheless, the father had set aside for him, no doubt. And he gave his son that which he had allotted to give him. After coming to a place of absolute recognition of his destitute condition, do you remember what he says then? I will go to my father and I will say unto him, make me. What a vast difference from going before his father, demanding him to give me something, and then going in submission saying, Father, just make me as one of your hired servants. It's not about what you, he's not even saying give me a spot. He's saying make me a servant. Let me be your servant. Look at the vast difference between those two statements. So prayer is never a means to get what we want. It is a means by which we surrender our will and ourselves to God. Aaron was commanded to offer incense continually unto the Lord. Most today would think, again, of the time they spend in prayer as being that sacrifice of prayer, but it is not the time itself. In biblical prayer, praying the way Jesus prayed, as I've already demonstrated from Scripture in quoting references, we are surrendering our will to God and sacrificing our desires on the altar of God's purpose and plan as well as dying to self that Christ might live through us. Luke twenty two forty two. I mentioned these a moment ago. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, and even notice, Father, if thou be willing. He's not making demands. He's saying, Father, in the flesh, I don't want to suffer in this flesh. Nonetheless, it's according to your will, and so may your will be done, not mine. Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The fact that this altar of incense was at the highest position in the holy place, meaning again, closest to the, to the most holy place, it teaches us that as well, I believe, that dying to ourselves by surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ is the highest calling, the greatest duty and responsibility the believer has. 2 Corinthians 4.10-11, Paul wrote, always bearing about, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Always bearing about, Paul says, always dying that Christ might live in me. Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
you know these verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What does the word service mean? Worship. This is your genuine, reasonable means genuine. This is your genuine worship. What's my genuine worship? Submitting my body a living sacrifice. Putting aside my will, dying to myself. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. As we surrender or submit to the Spirit of God, he continues to consume us. Again, when we think of people, people have really obviously misrepresented this truth of Scripture as well about being filled with the Spirit. Is a believer filled with the Spirit of God? Well, in Romans 8 9, Paul says this, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. <laughs> so either you have the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit. So do we ever get more of the Spirit? No. But the Spirit does get more of us. This is part of that sanctifying work. I've often used this analogy. It's very simple. But when you walked into this building, all of you came in this building. There's no way for us to get more of you into this building. But you are not in all this building. There's places you've not gone and seen or been yet. Think of this for a moment. When I receive Christ as Savior, I receive the entirety of God's Spirit. I get all of the Spirit. But he is constantly claiming more of me. He's constantly staking ground. He's constantly saying, I want this. This is mine. I own this. The Father has purchased this. (laughs) It doesn't belong to you. And so we are being sanctified in that respect. So we are being consumed by the Spirit of God as we submit to the Lord in prayer, in a spirit of prayer, in an attitude of prayer, of submission unto him. Our flesh, with all of its desires and selfishness, burns away with a growing passion for Christ. Philippians 3.10 says, That I may know him, Paul wrote, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul says, I may know him. In other words, again, to just summarize briefly, Paul is stating that whatever it takes for me to get closer to Christ, to know him more, I'm gladly willing. So the altar represents the sacrifice of our will, our desires, our flesh. And the incense represents our prayers and the glory God receives as we offer ourselves as a sacrifice unto the Lord. It's important to note as well that verse 9 teaches us that God will accept no strange incense. The Lord will not accept any false worship or man-made worship. The Lord only will accept the offering when it is made His way, when we come to Him based on His provision and His way. Look at verse 9 again. You shall offer no strange incense thereon, no burnt, sacri- no burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. Neither shall you pour drink offering thereon. Verse 10. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin of offering of atonements. Once in the year shall you make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. Let's consider in, in, in concluding this this morning the power of prayer in our lives. In Exodus 30, verse 10, we just read this. The incense was accepted on the basis of the blood of the sacrifice that had been made. Every year, they had to put the sprinkle the blood of the atonement upon this altar. The only way, hear me, the only way that the incense was ever pleasing unto the Lord, that first, it, the, the atonement had been made and applied to the altar. It was not the work of the priest in which God was pleased. Everything that brought the people to worship, to this divine service, was made accepted on the basis of the blood of the sacrifice, of that atonement. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, here's the verse we quoted earlier or read this morning, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What is the veil? His flesh is the veil. When his flesh was rent at Calvary, when it was torn, when it was beaten, when he gave up the ghost and died, in the flesh died, the veil was rent because the veil was only symbolic of the true, which is Christ. Because what is it that gives us 
What is it that gives us access into the presence of God? Is it our worth, our merit, because we've not sinned today? In fact, I will, I will say this to you, and you have to confess the same answer you're a liar. That's just all there is to it. And all liars have their place in the lake of fire, Revelation 21.8. So here's the reality of it. There's never been one moment, there's never been one instance, there's never been one time or one prayer that I've ever approached God without sin present in my life. So that really squashes this idea that we approach God based on our merit or how how righteously we're living. Look, the moment you begin to think that, you're offering strange incense unto God. The basis by which we've been given acceptance before the Father and access unto the Father is through the provision of His Son. That's what makes any of this acceptable or pleasing unto Him. So look at what he says again, Hebrews 10. We'll read verses 19 to 22 again together. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, the holiest by the blood of Jesus. How? By Christ, by his sacrifice, his atonement. By a new and living way, Christ, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's so much to say here I don't have time in, but both the altar, uh, the brazen altar and the laver are both mentioned here, if you understand what's being stated. He says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that is the atonement having been applied to us as individuals. We now have been atoned for. And then our bodies sprinkled with, or our bodies washed with pure water. That's the laver, the sanctification process through the word of God that is continually being taken, or continually taking place within and through our lives. So prayer in our lives is powerful, not because we learn to pray well. People think that they can pray with some swelling words, or they can stretch their prayers out to some great length, or they can become very loud and domineering in their prayer life. And that's really learning to pray well. Now, let me tell you how you pray well. Lord, I submit to you. Here I am. This is, these are my desires. You tell me to come to you with my petitions. I'm coming to you but even in coming to you may be according to your will. And may I submit my will and my desires to yours. Prayer in our lives is powerful, again, not because we learn to pray well as many would define it, but rather because the Father has accepted us by the blood of the sacrifice of his Son at Calvary. Hebrews four fourteen through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Meaning he possessed no sin. There was no sin in him. Let us therefore, because of that, let us come boldly under the throne of grace. Now again, boldly does not mean arrogantly. What does boldly mean? Confidently. Let us come confidently, with confidence, under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now wait a minute. Again, I've got to say this. I have to ask the question, when is the time of need? Someone help me. It's always. Hence, we are perpetually offering a sacrifice unto God because we have confidence that Christ is already accepted by the Father. We are now accepted in Him, and we are to follow after His example of submission. And so we are to come before the Father in absolute submission, recognizing I am continually in need. What am I in need of? His grace. All the time. The power of prayer. So what is the power of prayer? Well, it's the basis of the power of prayer is that the Lord Jesus Christ is accepted by the Father and His atonement is sufficient, all infinitely more than sufficient. And because of this, now we have been made accepted in the blood. This is the power that we have access unto the Father. And the power of prayer is, through, is that through biblical prayer, we submit ourselves to God and He then accomplishes His purpose in and through us to His own glory. 1 John five fourteen through 15. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Do you understand what John just said? John says, you want to have your prayer answered every time, the manner you pray it? 
always pray according to the Father's will. And anytime you pray else, he's not even listening. Meaning he's not going to grant petitions against his own will. Prayer is not only important, but it is necessity within every believer's life. However, prayer is not only to be for ourselves, but supplication, as I've mentioned, includes our prayer for others. What's more is that when any prayer or spirit we possess when praying to the Lord, what we call prayer, is anything other than submission, other than divine service, divine worship of Him, then we are offering a strange incense before God, which He condemns. We are made accepted because of the provision and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no merit we have, there is no claim we can rightfully make apart from God's provision for us in our Lord Jesus. So we will look further into seeing how Paul prayed for these Colossian believers, for this Colossian church. But might I say to you, when he says praying always for you, this is not just some kind gesture he is making towards them. But Paul is praying that they grow in the knowledge and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just conclude with this. Where is Paul when he wrote the letter to the church at Colossae? He's in prison. And you know what you don't find? You will not find Paul saying, hey, please pray for me that God deliver me from this prison. Because after all, I was serving him when I was put in prison. I don't really deserve to be here. I've done nothing wrong. In fact, I was doing right when I was put in prison. Might I say to you, I believe that would probably by large be our plea. If we were in prison today, for righteousness sake, we'd be saying, please pray that God get me out of here. Well, why didn't Paul pray there? Why, why, is, why is he rather... Why is he, rather than praying such a thing or requesting such prayer, we don't know what his personal prayer was, but I can guarantee you this. It was not a selfish prayer, but one submitted to the Father's will. And we see that by his supplication for others. While he is in prison, suffering in prison for righteousness sake, rather than saying, pray for me that I get out of this physical situation dilemma I'm in, he's praying that they grow in faith that they grow in knowledge of Christ, that they spiritually mature and be fruitful and planted and rooted in truth. I would venture to say that that is according to the will of God the Father. So when Paul prays for them, we see him praying, and we will see this unfold through the letter as we continue our study, but I believe it's imperative that we first understand what prayer is and what it's not. And that we not just simply skim over this statement, praying always for you, just as though, okay, I'm I'm always praying for you, I'm praying for your health, I'm praying for this, I'm praying for that. No, he is praying for their spiritual health and maturity and growth and faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Which again, is absolutely according to the will of God the Father. So let us stand together and we will pray. Our Heavenly Father.